God's Word in Luke 2, beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when Jesus was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sword that is opposed, and a sword that will pierce your own soul also, so that the thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you to hear your word. Lord, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by you that salvation will come. We ask that you would speak through your word this morning. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I have three older brothers. And early on in my parents' marriage, my mom often made desserts. Well, one night when my oldest brother was still in a high chair, he looked up at my parents at the end of the meal and said, Pie? Cake? Cookies? He'd never spoken before, but my mom so often made desserts. And my dad would so often ask at the end of the meal, Are we going to have pie tonight? Cook cake tonight or cookies tonight? Then my brother, right on cue, looked up and said, Pie? Cake? Cookies? You know, what were your first words as a child? What were the first words of your own children? You know, parents, they have all these months of pregnancy, and then the child is born, and you're wondering, what are they going to be like? What are they going to act like when they grow up? And their first words, their first actions, all these things are like indicators, clues. Oh, maybe that's what they'll be like. Well, interestingly... We're told very little about the early life of Jesus. Luke provides two snapshots for us. We'll look at one today and then one next week. Um, But really, there's not much else. You can turn to Matthew and there. He'll also talk about how they have to 
fly to Egypt because they're trying to escape the wrath of Herod. And then they go to Nazareth, but that's about it. Well, not too surprisingly, as you could probably expect, people aren't very content to have gaps in their knowledge. So some people have tried to fill these in. You can read the infancy gospel of Thomas in which he tells some things that Jesus supposedly did. For example, at age five, there was a rainstorm and Jesus moved the dirt in such a way that the water pooled in several places, Thomas tells us. Jesus then declared to the water, be clear and excellent. And the water immediately was. Well, all was well and good until a neighbor boy came along with a stick and messed up Jesus' pools of water. And Jesus said, like that stick, may you dry up. And as the boy walked away, he died. Well, the father's parents came and told Joseph, your son shouldn't act this way. Well, there's other stories. When Jesus was one day on the Sabbath playing in the mud, and Joseph was told, your son's playing on the Sabbath. So he came to rebuke Jesus. But Jesus had been making pigeons or sparrows or some type of bird in the mud. And when Joseph came, he said, go away, fly and live and remember me. And the mud became real birds and flew away. Well, I don't really believe those things happened. I think they're stories that people try and make up because they want to piece together. Well, what could have happened? Jesus, we know he did all these miracles. Maybe he did some when he was young. Except we don't have to come up with stories to fill in the gaps. We're given wonderful stories. And if we pause and reflect on what we have been given, we have much more than we first would have imagined. And we realize, look, God has given us all we need. Maybe we might want more, but he's given us all we need to know him and to know how to lead a life that honors him. And this morning, as we examine this story of when Jesus was an infant, when he was taken to the, test, to the temple, we're going to see several testimonies given about him there. First, in verses 21 to 24, we're going to see that he was set apart for God. Then in verses 25 through 32, that he is the light of the world. Then in 33 through 35, that he's a dividing line. And lastly, in verses 36 through 40, that he is the redeemer. But first in verses 21 through 24, we see that he's set apart for God. And you, we read there that Jesus was taken when he was eight and circumcised according to the laws and customs of Israel. And over and over again, Luke is showing that Joseph and Mary are a very devout couple. No, they don't merely just confess it with their lips, but they're constantly doing what the law requires them to do. And then the rest of the story is basically what happens from verse 22 on. It's the time of purification, and they're still living in Bethlehem, about five miles away from Jerusalem. So Joseph and Mary make the trip. Would have been a long day, but you could have done it in a day. And they go there for their purification. Now there's two events and possibly even three ceremonial rituals or events going on this day. First, Mary and Joseph are going for their ceremonial purification. After a woman gave birth, she was ceremonially, not morally, ceremonially unclean. And since it appears no one helped Mary give birth, Joseph had to help, so he was also. So they're going to the temple so it's probably been 40 days or so after Jesus' birth. Well, the second ritual that they are observing is presenting, as verse 23 tells us, the firstborn to the Lord. You may remember how in the book of Exodus, the Lord sends plagues on Egypt. 
And then when he sends the plagues, the tenth one is that he was going to kill every firstborn. And then from that, after that, he says in Exodus 13 two, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel is mine. Now, we don't use the word consecrate very much. Now, that's consecrate, not concentrate, not that stuff you make juice out of. Consecrate is to set something apart, to make it distinct, have a unique purpose. And God was saying every single firstborn of Israel is his. Now, actually, he was saying by that all are mine, but he was only making them give one. And the firstborn showed that. This actually takes an interesting turn, this giving of the firstborn to the Lord in Numbers 3. For there, God tells them, you can actually buy your firstborn back by giving five shekels, or a Levite can take their place. Now, I know this is Sunday morning, but we already had Sunday school, so we'll do a little Sunday math. Because in Numbers 3, there were 22,273 firstborn Israelites, but they were only 22,000 Levites. So if you take the 22,000 273, got to get my math skills back on, and subtract the 22,000. That means there was 273 firstborn who couldn't be substituted for. So now you got to do a little math. Five shekels for every 273 is, oh, you got it, Caleb? 1,365. Oh, way to go. Woo-hoo. We'll give you a candy bar later. So, 1,365 shekels were paid. Now, all that, why am I bringing all this up? One, I was a math teacher, and you always got to review. Review, review, review. That's the mother of learning. No, because you may have noticed that here, Jesus is not said that they paid the five shekels. Now, you could take that one of two ways. You could take, well, that's just silence. They're faithful. They did it. Or it could be that his parents are saying, we're not buying him back because his whole life is going to be set apart to the Lord. He is consecrated completely to God. And here, he is being consecrated. I believe that's what it's pointing to, but again, there's a little bit of ambiguity there. But either way, for sure, all of it was showing that, look, everything belongs to God. All of their life, all of our life should be consecrated, set apart to Him. Well, then this section ends with them offering sacrifices for purification. Verse 24, now it says, according to to what the law says. But that's actually interesting because the law actually says they're to give a lamb and a bird. They're only allowed to give two birds if they can't afford it. And so here, this is another sign that Joseph and Mary were quite poor. That God allowed his son to be born into poverty. And now, if you really like Bible trivia, this is also maybe a hint that the Magi hadn't come yet. Because what did the Magi give? Gold. And if they would have had gold, they would have been able to purchase this. So for those of you who love that Bible trivia, you can tuck that away next time you need to know where the Magi there when he was born. Nonetheless, I think this is showing us something very significant about Jesus. Now think about this here. Everything we have is God's. He gave it to us. And so we're just stewards. And so we owe him everything. But nothing of God's is ours. We don't have a right of anything that he has. You know, imagine you're at work and you're going out to your car and you see your coworker taking his desk and going and putting it in the back of his truck and then going back and getting his computer and you go, well, what are you doing? 
He goes, well, you know, I work here. It's mine. No, it's not yours. It's the company. You really have no right over it. Only as you're a steward here do you have a right over it. You don't have a claim on the company's possessions. So consider this. Jesus, he didn't owe us anything. And yet, God says, I'm going to send my firstborn so that he can live for you. He's going to consecrate. He's going to set his life apart for you. Now, he didn't have to. We have to do that. We owe God our whole life. Jesus didn't have to do that. By his humility, he came and entered into this world, consecrated his life for us, for God. He came to consecrate himself for us and God. Now, why would the Son of God do that? Well, because that's what's next, that he's the light of the world, verses 25 through 35. And the story here pauses, because it doesn't exactly first tell what happens. It introduces a new character, a new character named Simeon, and four things are told us about Simeon. Now, it's interesting that what we hear about Simeon is not his list of accomplishments that he did. It's not his position. It's all about his character. It's all about what his focus of life is, his direction of life. And I think that's really significant because in our life, what matters, it's not what accomplishments you have behind you. It's not the role you have in life. It's what is your character? What is the focus of your life? You know, to honor God, you don't need to be a pastor. You don't need to be a missionary, move off to another country. Wherever you are, you can honor and serve God fully in that role. Well, here, we're given four descriptions. First, Simeon is righteous. It means he's, not that it means he's perfect, but he's living in line with God's requirements. Second, he's devout. He's an example of being dedicated to the things of God. Third, his focus is on the consolation, or we might say comfort, of Israel. You know, he is living in the hope that God's promises will come to pass. That's the focus of his life. And really, a lot of this is drawing from Isaiah 40 through 66. Well, the fourth thing Luke tells us about Simeon in verse 25 is that the Holy Spirit was upon him. But then there's another amazing little fact of his life. And that is in some way, God had communicated through the Spirit that Simeon would not die until he had seen the Messiah. Now, this would have been an amazing promise. You know, I I am going to get to see the Messiah that we have longed for. And yet you have to imagine that every day as he gets older, he begins to wonder, is this really going to happen? Another day I went to the temple and just another day at the temple. Another day at the temple and excited to pray and be with the Lord. But where's the Messiah? Until this day when he enters the temple and he realizes it finally happens. And he takes the infant Jesus in his arms and he praises God. Now this has to be a little interesting. I don't know why, but for some reason when women are pregnant, their belly to many people is open target for women to come up and touch. And their babies are fair game. Anyone can come take your baby, but most women I know aren't really thinking their belly is open game or their baby. But yeah, people still do come take the baby. Now Simeon, we don't know if he's a priest or not maybe he was but he comes and takes the baby and so mary and joseph probably thinking what's going on and then he says these words and as we'll see they kind of wonder what is going on they marvel 
Well, what does he say? Well, first, he thanks God. He prays him, I can go in peace. He was, he was looking forward to this. His life was about seeing the Messiah and it's come. So now his journey is done. Now, remember for a second that Luke is writing this specifically because he's trying to show Theophilus and others the reality and certainty of who Jesus is and what he said and did. And this is again another promise, a miraculous promise that God has made and has come true. Miraculous promises to Zechariah and Elizabeth that when they're well past childbearing years, will bear a child. The promise to Mary that even though she's never been with a man, she'll conceive a child. The promise that though it's been hundreds of years since these promises, you, Simeon, will see the Messiah. And time after time, God makes a promise and it comes true. Every one of them was miraculous. And he's showing Theophilus over and over, you can trust God's word. These promises seem too great to be true, but they happen. And they happen. And they happen. Not just in the Bible. Even today, you can trust God's promises. They will come true. And so Simeon can depart. But notice what he says in verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now notice, he didn't say my eyes have seen the list of things that I got to do to make sure that I'm saved. Neither did he say, wow, I now have, I've done everything I need to do. It's not about him. It's about the baby. Salvation is the baby in his hands, not a project or journey. Now, I don't know about you. I don't find many people today who are working really hard, doing a lot of religious deeds, trying to earn God's favor. They do a lot of good things, but they aren't necessarily devoted there. But I do find a lot of people who are working hard, pursuing their spiritual journey. And as graciously as I can, I want to say to you, we're not here to help you on your spiritual journey. Your journey can stop because Jesus has come. You've arrived at the destination. Salvation is in Jesus. You need to travel no further. You don't need to look more into yourself. You don't need to continue down the path. Stop. Bend your knees and look up in awe with hands like Simeon and say, Behold, this is salvation. The child is here. Salvation has come. Because Jesus is going to grow up and he's going to live and die before Jew and Gentile. Or as he says, he's been prepared before the presence of all people. Now these are some really bold claims. How can Jesus be said to be the end of spiritual journeys? Well, because of what it says in verse 32. That he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now I think here, light is the main idea and the fours are two descriptions. So light... For revelation and light for glory. Now, we read earlier Isaiah 60, and in it, it began, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations will come to your light 
and kings to the brightness of your rising. See, the light of God has come to earth, and this leads to revelation for the Gentiles and glory for Israel. Now, they both will receive light, and both will have the effects of revelation and glory, but the Gentiles, in a greater way, need revelation because the Israelites had much revelation. Yes, they needed more, but the Gentiles are now seeing the revelation of God in Christ. I don't know if you've ever reflected on this, but you can't know someone unless they reveal themselves to you. You ask them a question, and if they give you short answers or they don't answer much, then you don't get to know them. The only way we know someone is by them revealing, by words or actions. God had to reveal himself. We could sit around and go, you know what, I think God would be like this. And then the next person could say, well, I think God would be like this. But then all we would be doing is each one of us would be guessing or assuming or trying to think through what God might be like. But that would be like you trying to guess what I'm like. It's just a guess. Until I say this is what I'm like, we're just guessing. But Jesus has come and revealed. Jesus is showing this is what God is like. If you want to know God, look at his son whom was sent. Well, Israel needs that revelation, but they're also going to receive glory. Glory because the promises of the Messiah, the promises of God came through the Jews. And so God will glorify them through his son. Now, light is a metaphor used throughout scripture. And that's because we're often afraid of the dark. We have lights all over our cities, all over our houses. And yet... The darkness has been overcome. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Is your life darkened right now? Is it darkened by fear of the future? Darkened by the loss of a loved one? Darkened by guilt over sin? darkened by difficult choices you have to make. Even as Christians, we can know the light, yet we can get our eyes diverted. And we can start focusing on something besides Christ. That's why we sing, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn! Your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now they'll go strangely dim, not disappear. The object of fear is still going to exist. But now it has perspective. Because the greatest and most powerful being in the universe loves you. And cares for you. And nothing can separate you from his love. The grief of losing someone doesn't just disappear. But now there's hope. Because we know that the one who is the resurrection and the life overcame death. The sinful guilt. This guilt we have over our sinful thoughts and actions. It's not erased from our life. But rather it was placed on Jesus. And so there's hope for forgiveness. You know, the difficult decision might still exist. But now that Christ is the center of your focus, 
everything else comes into proper perspective. You realize, look, my future isn't dependent on my ability to make the right choices. My future is in good hands, in nail-pierced hands that love me and gave himself for me. Are you living with your eyes focused on the light, on Jesus? Turn your eyes upon him. Trust him. Realize he is what your life was made to focus upon. Now we might think, oh, Mary and Joseph, they'd be jumping for joy. What wonderful news. Except as we noted, there's a little bit of shock. This man just took our baby and he said these things. And so it tells us next in verses 33 through 35 that they're marveling. And then Simeon tells them our third point that Jesus is going to be a dividing line. And so they're excited but marveling. What kind of child is this? The light of the world, but why is this man saying these things? And then Simeon blesses them. And then he says some things directly to Mary. He says, this child is laid down for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Now here, this is kind of alluding to a metaphor throughout Scripture, and that is that Jesus is a rock. And you can do two things with a rock. You can stumble over it, Scripture says, or you can build your life upon it. You either fall over it or rise upon it. And there's no middle ground, Simeon is saying. He's telling the parents of Jesus that there is a clear dividing line. Well, this August, our family took a vacation and we kind of did a historical tour of Texas. So we went down to Houston to San Jacinto where... Sam Houston led the Texans to the victory over Santa Ana and was able to earn Texans independence. We went to the area where Stephen F. Austin had the first colony in Texas, his colony. And then we also went to the Alamo. And if you know much of the history of the Alamo, you know that things were getting very desperate. And then finally, the man in charge, William B. Travis, realized no help is coming. We are not going to make it out of this alive. So he called all the men together and he told them, men, no one else is coming. The situation is dire. He then took a sword and he drew a long line and he said, I now want every man who is determined to stay here and die with me to come across this line. Jesus is a dividing line. You're either on one side or the other. Like in the Alamo, you can't say, well, you know what, maybe I'll just ride the fence. I'm not going to leave, but maybe Santa Ana will just, like, forgive me. Well, no. You either try and escape at night, or you stay and fight to the death. There's no other way. And here, Simeon is telling him that Jesus is going to be a dividing line. Not only that, but people will rise and fall over him. And that even, he'll be a sign that is spoken against. Now, this gets played out quite early in Luke. Flip over to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we're not going to dive into this too much. We've kind of hit a couple things. Jesus begins his ministry. He goes into the synagogue and he reads a passage of Scripture. And notice what it says in verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. 
And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So first, oh, Jesus is wonderful. This is great. We love what he's saying. But then Jesus tells them, look, I'm a prophet and people aren't going to believe. And just like in the past, they're going to hate me. And y'all are going to reject me too. Then look down at verse 28 and 29. Because then it says, when they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove them out of the town and brought them to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. There's no middle line. People may think, oh, Jesus is great, but then when they hear what he's really like, well, we don't want anything to do with that man. Well, Simeon goes on, because in verse 35 of chapter 2, he tells Mary that a sword will pierce your own soul. Now, this seems to be a parenthesis or a side note. And sword here isn't like a nice little dagger or a short little knife. It's a broad, two-edged sword that's going to pierce her emotionally, deeply. Now, no no doubt this is going to come from her own anguish. As Jesus' siblings, Mary's children say, Jesus is crazy. But more than that, it's probably going to come at his betrayal, his condemnation, his crucifixion. I know some of you have sadly had to bear the immense burden of bearing one of your own children. And those who I've talked to said no one should have to go through that. And yet Mary is going to have to personally see her son betrayed by all his supposed friends, unjustly condemned, and then publicly humiliated through crucifixion. She is going to have her own emotional soul pierced. Well, after this parenthesis or side comment, Simeon goes back and says that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And that first kind of struck me, well, what does he mean by that? I think what he means is Jesus reveals where people really stand with God. You know, people can mold Jesus into whom they want him to be. Well, yeah, we love Jesus. But then when Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. People go, well, I don't like that Jesus. You know, people, they love spirituality. They love faith, God. Oh, yeah, that's good. But don't talk about Jesus being the only way. You know, Jesus, even as we saw in Luke 4, he's a clear dividing line. And he reveals where we really stand with God. Now, this is important for us to remember because some of us when we first saved we're so excited and we go to tell our friends and family and why aren't they excited we would expect hey, this is wonderful and then we realize they aren't as excited as we are on the flip side this should be an exhortation to others of us who've been christians a long time and have told many who aren't excited that there are still others that god is calling to himself who will hear with joy and we should not grow weary of telling the good news. And I, I would expect that for some of you, Jesus has probably been a dividing line with family, with friends, with co-workers, that because of your love and faithfulness to Jesus, they may even hate or dislike you. You know, everything's fine until you bring Jesus up and then a light gets ignited in their eyes, tempers, flare 
And yet Jesus warned of this. He said in John 3, 19 through 21, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, we might like different options. We might like that, you know, I'm just going to kind of straddle the fence. I'm not opposed to Jesus. I'm not really for him. I'm just going to kind of be a good person. And, yeah, do you like Jesus? That's fine. We might wish that was an option. Or we might wish, you know, I'm gonna, he's my Savior, but I don't really want him to be my Lord. I'm not going to, like, obey him every day. And yet Jesus says there's no other option. You fully trust and obey him or you deny him. He leaves no room in the middle. And I, I think it's often revealing the way people talk about and think about Jesus. You know, if someone's angry and they curse, I've never seen anyone go, Oh, Buddha! Or, Oh, Allah! They use Jesus' name in vain. Well, if you look at satanic symbology, what do they have? One of the symbols is an upside-down cross. Why? Because Jesus is the dividing line. That people can't stand the real Jesus. The one who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But he's a dividing line. That means some people are on the other side, that they love him, that they know that he is their redeemer. And that's where the story goes last in verses 36 through 40, that Jesus came to be the redeemer. And another character is added to the story, a woman prophet, a prophetess named Anna. She was married seven years, it tells us, and then she was a widow. Now, it could be she's a widow until she was 84 years old or for 84 years. Either way, it's a long time. For at least six decades, she has been a widow, and her life has been devoted to serving God at the temple. She's there so much fasting and praying, it says she never leaves. I think it's like people today when they talk about a Christian who's very devoted, and they say, oh, they're there every time the doors are open. You know, she was a very devoted person now before going into what she says about jesus i want to pause and kind of back up a little bit take a bird's eye view so to speak of what luke's doing now remember he wants people specifically theophilus to know the reality of these events and what did they need in their culture to say this is true well they needed at least two witnesses well we had simeon now we have Anna, two temple witnesses. But Luke has shown not just two, he's shown multiple witnesses. He's shown angels. He's shown shepherds. He just showed us a pious man and now a pious woman who've all spoken to who this baby is and what he will do. And notice, this is not testimony of people after Jesus died and rose again. Well, you know what? We think he was this. This is when he's still an infant. People declaring what he will be, who he is, and what he will do. So here we have beings, both rural and urban. Beings that are male and female, heavenly and earthly, all declaring the same message of who Jesus is from different angles. And thus I think this explains why Luke spends a fair amount of time de detailing the character of Simeon and Anna. You know, if 
there's a very important witness in a court case. What does the opposing side try to do? Well, they try to bring people up to attack the credibility of the witness, to undermine their witness because they're a shady person. And yet here, Luke is showing these are model witnesses. They love the Lord. They're devoted. They're constantly at the temple. And so here, Luke is presenting witnesses whose character and thus testimony can be trusted. And all this builds up to what Anna says when she sees the son. She gives thanks to God. And she says that this is the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, I think, is being used symbolically. Like, we might say, boy, Washington, D.C., that is so corrupt. Or Hollywood, they're morally bankrupt. Now, we don't mean the dirt at Hollywood and the hills are corrupt. And we don't mean the river, the Potomac. Well, actually, it is pretty nasty. But nonetheless, that's not my point. We're not talking about the area around Washington, D.C., the land. We're talking about the people there. But we can refer to the city and it refers to the people in it. So when she's talking about the redemption of Jerusalem, I think she's talking about the redemption of the people there. And redemption is just a way of referring to salvation by buying something back. And just as God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, so he's promised to redeem them again. Now, Anna probably didn't see the full implications of what this meant for Jesus. But we're told the rest of the story. So we'll read in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Christ bought us. It's the image of redemption. He bought us by being the purchase price himself. He died in our place, taking our curse so that we might know the Father's blessing. Thus it says in Titus 2.14, He gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. And so we've seen here these snapshots of the Savior. We've seen here people waiting. Not about you, but waiting is something that most people hate to do. We're people of action. We like to be in control. But then there's times in our life when we have to wait. It might be in a waiting room. It might be for the bell to end the school day or that class. It might be for your birthday. It might be for the arrival of that package. It might be for the sermon to end. Nevertheless, we hate to wait. Oh, oh, I wish you would come right now. Well, Simeon and Anna have been waiting, anticipating, longing for the Messiah to come. And now that he's come, there is joy and peace. So much peace that Simeon can even say, I can depart in peace. In 1954, Samuel Beckett wrote a play entitled Waiting for Godot. The play is quite simple. Two men are sitting on a stage. There's a tree there, and they're waiting for a character named Godot, G-O-D-O-T, to show up. And they converse back and forth, and then a master and his slave come by. But by the end of the day, a messenger comes and says, Godot isn't going to come today, but he says he'll come tomorrow. And the scene ends with the men saying, well, we better leave. But they just sit there, 
Well, the next scene, curtain rises, the men are still sitting there, and they're still waiting for Godot. And the master and slave come by again, but now this time, one of them is blind, the other's dumb, and they swear they've never met these two men before. And after they leave, the same messenger boy comes again, and they can even interrupt him this time and go, yeah, yeah, Godot says he's coming tomorrow, he's not coming today, we know. And after the boy leaves, the men, they consider, he's never going to come, let's just hang ourselves. And they got the tree, and they get, take the rope off their belt, and oh, we don't have enough rope, can't even do that. We better go. And then they sit there, and the curtain comes down, and the show ends. Always waiting for Godot, but he never shows up. Now, the play has been interpreted in many ways, but many allusions point to the fact that Samuel Beckett is talking about waiting for God, and he never shows up. Yeah, we're gonna, he's going to do something someday, but just not yet. Maybe tomorrow. And since he doesn't come, what is there? It's hopeless. It's painful. We're filled with limping, empty longing, and all we can do is sit around and wait, depressed and empty. And you may feel, I'm waiting for Godot. I'm waiting for God. Will he just show up? We're here to declare this morning, Godot God has shown up in Jesus Christ. You don't need to wait. In his first coming, he didn't immediately restore everything, but he took the curse of sin and made a way for blessing instead of curse to come. And he's going to come again. And when he does, he's going to put everything in subjection to him. And he's going to gather his people to himself. Hebrews 9 says, And just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now what are you eagerly waiting for? And the sermon is going to end quickly. It will come. But what are you eagerly waiting for? You know, we all long for meaning for satisfaction, for wholeness, for pleasure. But in this life, we'll never know it perfectly due to sin. But we can know it truly in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, there will be days of pain. As Simeon even warned, there's going to be days of trials and wanderings. Yet Jesus is still there, shining the light and life to all who will come to him. What or whom are you eagerly waiting for? Everything else. Everyone else is going to tarnish, fade, and pass away. Christ is the only light that has bought redemption and beams joy and life and light. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your Son came to be the light of the world, to be the Redeemer. Lord, would there not be in here anyone who is on the wrong side of the dividing line? Lord, would people see the light in life that comes in your Son? Lord, it's not just a good myth, a good story to get us through, but He did really come and He'll come again, and we can eagerly wait for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.